Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Freedom International Livestream. Roy and I would like to welcome you again and thank you for all your support, especially for, you know, when you decide to share it because it's important that what we deliver to you will also be shared uh, to multitudes because we're not doing this for nothing. We just wanted you to make sure that you get some really good and truthful education and then start acting on what you learned. And, uh, and we welcome as well Matthew Eret and Matthew Eret or Matthew Eret, so however you want to say his name, <laughs> he's okay with that. You know, he's not fussy. And um, for Matt, you really have to make sure that you follow or go to the website risingtidefoundation.net as well as canadianpatriot.org. And of course, him and his wife, Cynthia Chung, is also in Substack. So subscribe in Substack and oops, let me correct that spelling, Matthew Eric, and look for Matthew Eric and also Cynthia Chong. And to those who don't know, Matthew also has a book series, The Untold History of Canada. And and also the clash of two americas volumes one two and three and i know that both of them continue to create classes on on certain sundays and sometimes on the weekend and uh, i mean on on the weekday yeah, yeah. So make sure that you really um connect with him i for one start to understand better and better on what's going on in the community even within the pod the so-called alternative alternative media because sometimes we don't know that right in the alternative media there's some type of infiltration or a fifth column working in it and so when that's why matthew when i asked matthew to come we just had recently that conversation on the organ harvesting in in china and I have a gut feeling, plus my understanding of the fifth column, that there's something missing in what we did. Of course, we there's not a lot to converse in a one and a half hour, but I know that Matthew could bring some light to that. And you, we all know that there's some change in the monarchy, maybe a change for some people, but who knows? Hopefully, it's a change for us and it will be for the better. So, Matthew, we just want to take your lead and we'll follow also and Roy and I would like to just be part of this conversation and thank you again for everything that you do. Hey, thank you guys for inviting me and for setting up this this platform. I, I think it's a it's a really healthy uh, process and you know frankly yeah I, I you know, I'm I originally had in my mind um my presentation was going to be wired to address uh, specifically the question of Falun Gong, um, organ harvesting, what what's going on? Because there's a lot of this, especially in the alternative media uh, channels that are vectored towards mostly people on the on the conservative end of the spectrum um, who really don't like the Great Reset. So it's very re they're very receptive to this, and you know the people are afraid. They're very much looking for. Um, a cause and name to give to the cause of their problems, their fears, the great reset and what have you. So, you know, it's, it's very much something that Westerners are ready. They're ripe to um, accept that the 
evil yellow people on the other side of the world who talk differently. They don't look like us. Uh, they're the cause of our problems. They're the godless mm -hmm. commies that killed the Christians and all of this stuff. So a lot of this is, is you know, psychological, deep psychological material that has been embedded really during the Cold War, during the 1950s, 60s, the age of McCarthyism, the age of, you know, I mean, it was an insane era. It was, it was a real insane period. Um, and it's being sort of reactivated right now in, in the current crisis. When things were stable, you could sort of ignore it, but it's not like it wasn't there during, you know, the 19, 1991 collapse of the Soviet Union, the ushering in of the, the, the unipolar era under, you know, Kissinger, George Bush Sr., Biden was giving speeches on how I came to love the New World Order in 1992. Um, and so there was a certain sense that, ah, okay, maybe for once we don't have nuclear terror finally to uh, go to sleep to at night and we can rest. And there's a certain amount of abundance. There's a certain amount of stability and affluence still within the system. So people could rest easily. They could just enjoy the experience of living a little bit. If you were, that is, if you were in the, the first world part of the collective West, you know, you were in a consumer society, a services market. There wasn't an obvious sense that there was a fire in the building that you were living in. That was not there yet. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a fire. It just means that the sense that there wasn't a fire wasn't there. Now, a lot of the prejudices against Russia, against China that were built up in, like I said, the propaganda era of the CIA-controlled media complex of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, Project Mockingbird, all that stuff, it, that stuff didn't go away. All that trauma wasn't dealt with. So now what we have is those who are on the left are being, um, especially since Trump got into office, they their deep psychology, their, their, their deep trauma is being invoked in the sense of the fear of Russia the evil Russian villains, and that's catering more to the democratic-leaning, left-leaning part of the population. On uh, the right side, it's more the big, bad China commies that are being catered to. Um, and there's a lot of various forms that the narratives take to cater to, to frame um, material to the different groups, the target audiences. Overall, the thing that I want to get at today, which touches, and I'm not going to talk just about that today, as I was going to, I want to talk about a few other things instead, because so much happened over the past two weeks that I think add contour and shape to this discussion. Um, number one is the death of Queen Elizabeth and the uh, the 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 rise of King Charles III. That's an interesting thing that just happened. And a lot of people are still a little bit confused about what this is. The other thing is a speech that Sergei Glaziev, a leading uh, grand strategist, uh, an advisor to, to Vladimir Putin, uh, one of the key figures behind a newly emerging financial architecture around the Eurasian Economic Union, which was set up by, uh, by Russia some years back. And it's a collective group of about six nations, Russia being the lead, that has tied itself and its destiny with the Belt and Road Initiative of China in 2015, the Eurasian Economic Union and China's uh, what's called otherwise the the new silk road signed a cooperative integration agreement in, in 2015 and several since that has increasingly uh tied them in and glaziev has been in charge or charged with the assignment of establishing um formalizing a new financial architecture pepe escobar recently did an interview with glaziev going through what this new financial architecture is is increasingly going to look like founded as it is upon certain principles of banking 
which utilize state-controlled nationalized banks instead of private central banks run by sociopaths uh, <laughs> who are part of a death cult in London and Wall Street. Very different approach. And the idea of credit emissions isn't tied to speculation or unpayable uh, debt sources as it is in the West. So when you look at the behavior of the economic uh, processes underway in Eurasia, how are how is it that they're able to build the sorts of mega projects that we have not been able to do in the West for 60, 70 years? We lost that capability a long time, way before I was born. We lost that, that capability. They can do it. They can build things. And I'm going to go through some slides. I'm going to show some pictures to make this visceral. Uh, they can do things that... <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's we're talking about $4 trillion so far of direct investments into the Belt and Road Initiative. This is like 20 um, Marshall Plans that rebuilt Europe in, after World War II. And it's, it's tied to a certain idea, which is very much in opposition to the, the degrowth Malthusian agenda, which wants to get and or corral the target populations into a smaller and smaller cage of diminishing returns. And we talked about this in previous broadcast with your group, you know, the, the idea is empires always work by getting their victims to destroy themselves. It, it, you know, we don't willfully just vote. Okay. I, I, who, who's going to commit uh seppuku because we're overpopulated, you know, you want to do it? Yeah, I want to do it. No one, no one does that. So the way that it's done is you try to create conditions of scarcity artificially. And this has been done since ancient Babylon, this has been done, you know, you get the slaves to fight each other over over an absence of food. So they fight for crumbs. And that way they're too busy killing each other to realize that they have a common enemy who's manipulating all sides. This is this is how geopolitics was, was arranged throughout the Persian uh, wars against Greece. It was arranged throughout the Roman period, the Roman Empire period. It was arranged all throughout the medieval period, throughout the, the religious wars between, you know, Protestants and Catholics and different feudal, uh, you know, princely... Uh, dukes and, and what have you, and, and prince electors of Germany who are all fighting each other for little scraps and getting their uh, their feudal um, serfs to basically be the cannon fodder in these ins insane wars, all being funded by the same bankers, the same Venetian financiers. We're happy to fund Catholic and Protestant alike to kill each other. That was the <laughs> that's the entire like 19 from the moment M Luther did his posted his edicts, his ninety two edicts, all the way you know, throughout the, the religious, the 30 years war and beyond. That's the way it works. So, and even today in Ireland, right? I mean, it's, 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 you've got tentacles of gladio fascist operations in all sides. Obviously my sympathies are with the South, but at the same time, you know, it is what it is. Like people are being manipulated. Good people are being manipulated. Um, and this is, as you pointed out, Grace, in the, in the alternative media community, there's no shortage of psyops, uh, narrative creations by intelligence, um, agencies, storytellers that are able to create coherent narratives to capture free thinkers who think outside the box. And they think that they jumped out of one mainstream box and then they fall into a net, which is a contrived net. And they think that they figured it all out because now they've got an alternative explanation that explains everything, but it was all shaped by the same agencies that were creating the mainstream narrative. And that's just part of so how do you how do we how do we piece things together, right? How do we uh, decipher or sift out the wheat from the chafe? Um, so in my presentation, I'm going to go through a little bit of that today too, um, especially on Charles, because I think the 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 question of the monarchy gets us more at a causal nexus to what is the real evil that is shaping the world. What is the evil the the source of the evil agenda? And there is evil there are evil agendas, 
even though people don't like the word evil, I mean, it, some people get a little bit flustered with the term more evil because, you know, I think the logic is that, well, everybody does things that they think are good to themselves. So because they personally believe it's good, um, there's no such thing as evil. I personally am philosophically of a different view. I think that if you do things that are, that you know, that are, are in opposition to your conscience and you know that it's going to hurt people unjustly to maintain a lie that is designed to destroy them for your own pleasure. And you actually shape your passions in such a way to get pleasure out of doing things that hurt people um, and destroy the good. I think that that qualifies as much as anything does that I've ever seen as, as being evil. Um, but again, that's, that's a philosophical discussion. But I think that the, the inner nobility, the black nobility, the ancient bloodlines, which are very inbred, and don't get confused here by the, the propaganda, Prince Charles is an inbred, uh, a deeply inbreded um, thing. His, his, his parents are cousins. They had the same grandma. And, uh, and you're dealing with something which stretches back a very long way. So Charles himself is the guy, you know, when the, when the Great Reset was ushered in, in uh, June of 2020, as a, as a new agenda, it wasn't Klaus Schwab who was selected to usher it in. It wasn't Bill Gates. It wasn't Michael Bloomberg. Or... It, was, it was actually Prince Charles, who was the one who was selected to give the inaugurating speech ushering in the Great Reset and, uh, and sort of take credit as being the... And I don't think he's got the brains to actually create anything as far as grand strategy, but he's the one who's been assigned by his handlers to usher this thing in because they have a certain veneer, a certain image for the crown as an institution that transcends an individual life of an Elizabeth, of a Victoria, of a, of a George VIII Nazi king, of a king, of a Charles. There's something that is more valued as the crown institution, which um, those inner groupings that are shaping the oligarchies, uh, designs its its strategies value very highly so you know the fact that prince bernhard of the netherlands who's one of these inner uh inner bloodlines uh, he died in 20, 2004 but the fact that he was selected to be the guy to create the bilderberger group in 1954 not a coincidence you know it could have been somebody else who actually made managed this globalist institution or at least actually controlled it but they selected one of these royals they selected uh, again bernhard and philip uh montbatten to be the co-creators of the, or the founders of the World Wildlife Fund for Nature in 1961. And it's I, even interesting math mm -hmm. that like for me, when I grew up in the Philippines, I, then I hear all these stories about the royalty. It's it's always like a question to me, why are people like so, why do they think these people are so important? And so I never really thought, I thought people just like fantasizing so much to, just to glorify them and yeah. especially when i came already to united states and then you know everything that was happening with prince charles and diana it was like just so but now i truly know that it was now it's really part of that um mind manipulation and propaganda and just just blinding everything yeah oh yeah 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 no i i thought so too i thought it was a benign i'm a canadian now the queen is my head of state that's my, that's the head of my government is the queen. Uh, it's all, all my, all my money. It's, it's, you know, you have to pledge allegiance to the crown. If you're a, if you're an immigrant, you want to become a Canadian citizen, you pledge allegiance to the, to the, the crown. You don't pledge allegiance to uh, the flag or the people or the same thing for the, the prime minister. If you want to become prime minister of Canada or even a cabinet minister, 
you pledge allegiance to her majesty, the queen, or in this case, it's going to be his majesty. They're going to tweak it. Um, and their heirs and to do uh, that, which a good servant ought to do for his or her majesty. Um, and to keep secret that which is being given in secret in privy council. These are all oaths that, you know, you have to go through if you're going to represent, if you're going to be an, a manager of the uh, this part of the 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 Grand's chessboard in Canada or in Australia or in New Zealand or, you know, in there's a variety of other countries, but it's big these these big Anglo Five Eyes Commonwealth countries. That's where it's like the most virulent. But we're all taught as Canadian citizens that um, Justin Trudeau is our head of state. The the Queen is just this nice symbolic polite figure, just symbolic, nothing there, no real power. And it's only when you start scratching the surface, and I get through this in my books on the Untold History of Canada. What are the actual levers shaping decision-making both today and all the way back to the, you know, 19th century when our so-called constitution was created? And it's it's directly codified. And you can see actual evidence of this. It's the Privy Council and the Privy Council Office specifically, which is the, the center nerve, the, the nerve center, the, the cerebral command structure around which the entire multifaceted system of the civil service the military policy, the intelligence, the media, everything, as well as the deputy, the deputy uh, ministers. And what the hell is a deputy, these unelected deputy ministers who were installed in every single office of an elected official? What are they? How, why are they receiving their commands and their marching orders and the directives from the Privy Council office? What is that? This giant bureaucratic unelected machine, right? And how is it responsive to the Privy Council system in London, which it is? And how is it interfaced with things like the roundtable movements of Cecil Rhodes, which they are, which there is a, a branch that was set up in the 1920s in Canada. It's still there. Um, what about the, the American branch of the, the roundtable movement that was set up to infiltrate and take back control of the U.S. Uh, rebellious colonies, which is what Cecil Rhodes called them in 1877 when he set up his, his Rhodes Scholarship and, and roundtable manifesto which they are, and it's called the, the Council on Foreign Relations. That's the, the American branch of the British Chatham House Roundtable Movement. That's like an inner, <laughs> upper echelon uh, think tank of all think tanks that interfaces with intelligence, it interfaces with, with everything. And they've got penetrations all over the world. In South Africa, uh, you know, there's a branch. There's there's a branch in Australia. And they're all inter interfacing with each other to do to bring about exactly what Cecil Rhodes said was the design back in the 1870s with people like Nathaniel Rothschild that he was interfacing with. You had figures of this. I mean, you can't explain anything in history. I'm going totally off my script here. I, was, I had a plan to do something else, but whatever. Just on that, actually, because you yeah. mentioned Rothschild, because I seen a picture, because they have a list of the different things you should do with royalty, you know, you shouldn't. And you can see a picture of Rothschild pointing to Prince Charles. That It's like you can see that he's under him. There's tension. There's tension. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, Prince Charles is a bit of a pushover. He's got, I mean, a lot of the, the, to get into the psychology of the oligarchical sort of mindset, there's a lot of contradictions you have to live with. On the one hand, he does have a bit of a God complex. He does actually think, Charles, that he is ordained by a, a, de, a, a, a deific, a, a deistic sort of force of some sort to usher in a global change. Um, he does believe this sort of thing. He has a messiah-like complex that's been given to him. At the same measure, you see him getting poked around a lot. <laughs> you 
<laughs> you know. Um, so and started... there's one thing that's I think I mean everybody's familiar with uh, Prince Andrew and Epstein, but if you look at Prince Charles and his best buddy, like there's hundreds of pictures of Jimmy Savile, and they waited till he actually croaked before they came out, and he was kind of <laughs> with Thatcher with heat and. Like, show me your friends, I tell you what you are. The guy was one of the world's worst pedophile, necrophilia, everything. Like, it looks like he was feeding the rest of the, the royal family. Oh, yeah, most certainly. It's disgusting. There's some crazy documentaries on Jimmy Seville's exploits, uh, which are nasty. And this guy is knighted, you know, by Her Majesty as well for services to <laughs> exactly, the Empire. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, we've got thousands, undoubtedly, probably more uh, of cases. Uh, I think there was 500 official cases, but I, of child, like, we're talking underage by a, a large margin underage um, into babyland here of what this guy, this predator was actually doing. And there's necrophilia material as well. Like, there was some nasty stuff. And as you pointed out, defended by the highest echelons of the power structures of the, of the royalty of Thatcher that had... I mean, we now know. Of did you very- see? Yeah. Because a lot of people haven't seen this, but I remember there was some procession that was going by Buckingham Palace. There was a young child naked climbing out the window yeah, yeah, with yeah. a blanket and he just fell to the ground and that was yeah. all hushed up. So yeah. it is happening inside. We have proof. But yet it's like, oh, let's wash our hands. This yeah. isn't happening. Close our eyes here. Yeah. You know, the whole- like no, no follow up on that conversation. Yeah, that, that's crazy. Um, no, exactly. So you're dealing with something really sick. And the fact that Seville was a, a mentor of both Andrew and Charles, um, not a coincidence. He was a very close friend with Philip. Philip, who said, you know, repeatedly that he wants to be re- reincarnated as a deadly virus to solve overpopulation. Um, that Philip, who also worked, like I said, to create the World Wildlife Fund as a new type of organizing mechanism around changing the values of society from being one that our former society which, which they uh, worked to, to transform, valued scientific and technological progress as the tools to how, to how human beings leap beyond the, the limits to growth, which no other animal species is able to do this in a willful manner. Only human beings, through the medium of science, technological progress, and the sharing of the fruits of such discoveries to our fellow men and women, allows us the ability to always leap beyond our carrying capacity. That was understood. That was what governed the behavior, the ethic of humanity for most of the period from the great, you know, Florentine Renaissance onward until the 60s. And and it took the murder of many people like Enrico Mattei and and John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and the ouster of Charles de Gaulle in a a color revolution. And it took a lot of murder uh, to to remove the the defenders of humanity in the 60s and early 70s, such that this new ethic, uh, ethic ethos. Um, of saving nature from humanity could be the new morality. And that was the the key driver of this process was the World Wildlife Fund, which had an umbrella of thousands of of smaller groups, all apparently independent, you'd think, Greenpeace and Save the Earth and all of these little groups, they all appear to be independent. But as people like Patrick Moore, one of the co-founders of Greenpeace, made made the point, no, there was a, a broader social engineering process underway and he broke free. He was actually the only scientist among the founders of Greenpeace. And he was like, wait a minute, we're we're, we're kind of losing track of what we're doing here, guys. Like we're trying to like run campaigns to 
illegalize elements on the periodic table from existence. Like we're kind of running against nature here. What are we doing? <laughs> so he broke free and has been a, a voice of sanity. Whereas his colleagues, unfortunately, kept on, they love the Kool-Aid too much. But all that to say, we're now in a situation where there's a real crisis moment, right? So you see the ugly pus that's been there the whole time, and, and it manifests in a variety of ways. The um, the actual British Empire, as it actually was and is, never disappeared. It's it's the idea that the empire dissolved itself after World War II, and then now you have the American Empire that took the baton. No, that is... a a fallacy with an element, a sprinkling of truth to make it more palatable. The reality is the U.S. was infiltrated and taken over by British-controlled fifth columns that had always been there, that had killed every single American president since, I mean, even the pre-presidential, uh, the murder of Alexander Hamilton was, was, was initiated in 1804 by a British stooge named Aaron Burr, who was the founder of the Bank of Manhattan. The entire Wall Street complex was founded by Aaron Burr, who killed Hamilton and then built up a machine that led to killing the, the, the second or the, yeah, the second national bank of Hamilton years later. Um, so this, this whole British controlled operation has been there for a very long time. And, uh, and that's what took over, over the dead bodies of Kennedy. It, it was a coup d'etat. It wasn't just something inside the U S that killed Kennedy. It was something that was directed by some, by, by the British foreign office far overseas. And it is an integrated, very centralized system. Very few people are, uh, given the 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 experience to understand what the whole is doing, it's you have to be part of like the Cambridge Apostles to be granted the 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 privilege, and because you're going to have now a role to play in managing managing a, a higher echelon in the chain of command than most other other groupings would, who have to be put down on lower rungs within the system. You know, like a Justin Trudeau does. Does a Justin Trudeau know know what he's doing? No, not at all. He's no, he's not permitted to have a brain to understand that. His assignment is what it is. Um, and when you get up to a higher level, you start seeing that there are certain um, uh, secret societies, obviously, that have imbued certain, um, they're, they kind of like organize around cults. So that you have cult creation and cults and subcults. And secret societies are often initiated and organized in the form of a cult for upper level management. So you have to give people... Um, a divine-like mission for themselves to shape their identity so that they can then be used in a relatively deterministic fashion, thinking that they are now the part of a broader design that they themselves don't control. They're just designed to facilitate. And when you go through enough of the steps using Masonic initiations, you you know go through enough Kabbalistic deconstruction of your own mind through self-hypnosis, which is part of what you have to do in both Jesuit orders in various ways. There's, there's one variety for that. There's another variety for some of the Southern Rite Freemasonic uh, rites of initiation, which you can get by by just reading Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma. You, you lose your free will. You give up your free will. Now, does, does Albert Pike, who actually wrote the protocols for that, believe in the things that he wrote? Hell no, he doesn't believe in that. He has his own, you know, upper elect uh, sets of values and beliefs. But he created this to give it, to create a culture of elitism and in, and and essentially cults for the 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 upper managers that would then think again like Charles does that uh, they're divinely ordained to carry in a, a transformation of one form or another. In the case of Queen Victoria, she was a you know she really believed that she was a descendant of Jesus. She's part of the British Israelite sect. That was an openly like that is something that is provably fa factual. It's not like a theory. 
you could provably uh, demonstrate that Queen Victoria was a British Israelite who is maintained, they are given the belief that like what, what was popularized, you know, for the masses in Martin Scorsese's uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. They popularized some of these inner beliefs for the masses too to make it, you know, to, they do it with the Da Vinci Code of Dan Brown's works as well as uh, things like Indiana Jones scripts that are approved by Hollywood, right? That that all three of those original Indiana Jones deal with actual crap that the oligarchy really believes about the Temple of Solomon, uh, Solomon uh, King Solomon's Temple. The rebuilding of that, the lost ark, all of these, the, the, the all of these things that are that are tied to the Templar uh, Manichaean cults that were created by ultramontanists in the in the the early 11th century or late 10th century, um, as part of the broader crusades against the the Muslim world geopolitically. All of these things are they create. See, the oligarchy creates, and I got this from Lyndon LaRouche, who recently passed away. But Lyndon LaRouche wrote a really good article or an essay back in 1977 that I, I enjoyed so much. Um, you guys hear about Lyndon LaRouche? You ever look into Lyndon LaRouche? Okay, I'm going to send you a thing. Um, he, he died at the age of 96 in 2019. He ran for the presidency in America about eight times, world record. Um, but he created, like, you could, you could read his writings. He set up movements, political movements inside of the United States and also internationally back in the early 70s. Um, when he could see he was teaching at Columbia and he could see that a lot of the, the assassinations going on, Fred Hampton, uh, Bobby Kennedy, um, were all being arranged by something that had taken over the USA. And unlike a lot of other people, he chose to do something about it. And he recruited, you know, his students to basically create a political movement. And they started magazines. You could read them online. It's some fascinating material. Um, and, uh, he wrote an essay called Secrets Known Only to the Inner Elites. And he makes a point that one of the greatest Achilles heels of the oligarchical system, which goes back to ancient times, is that just like the humanists who also conspire, so there's there's conspiracies for good and for bad. The difference, and, and both of them use certain things like myth-making. They create myths. Some take the form of religious veneers. Some take the form of stories that are like, you know, they, they transcend individual generations and they become sort of organizing forces in the in the archetypes and the zeitgeist now the, the the those humanists who have emerged in opposition to the oligarchical uh, strata embed within their stories certain truths in meta in metaphor right in allegory that when you actually think about them in a in a you know in a certain way you become more in tune with the divine right so if, if people actually like read the new testament yeah, there's a lot of stories and myths embedded in the New Testament, I'm sure. But at the same measure, they, you you are less inclined to want to suffer injustice. You are you are more inclined to see yourself as being being made in the image of a creator. That's that's not a very wieldy person. If you have people of that mindset, they're not going to necessarily just become talking cow mind slaves or sacrifice their kids to uh, because the the feudal lord says you should. We don't have enough food. They will tend to do something else that's more creative. So um, what LaRouche said is the biggest advantage that humanists have against the, the elite is that they, they also create myths for a target audience. Their myths, however, are embedded and their stories are embedded with the trappings to keep you more stuck in the, the cave, right? The, the cave of the shadows, where by going through that process, you're more bestialized, you're more governed by your uh, irrational passions that keep your mind enslaved to a, a, a more lowly identity, more becoming of a slave. 
So that's the that's the effect of like drinking too much of the of the myths of uh, of an oligarchy of, of a master class. The 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 but okay. So where is their weakness? The weakness is that they end up believing their own myths. So over time, <laughs> that you see this, you can see actually see traces of this all over the place. They don't those who who create the story, whether again it's it's um, whether it's 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 they call him Saint uh, Bernard uh, de Clairvoy. Clairvieux, um, who is one of the founders of the Knights Templar, not really a saint. This guy's an ultramontanist um, oligarchist who uh, created a cult. Okay. And a lot of the, the, though he didn't believe in the cults, rites of initiation, the stories that they had to go through to, uh, the, you know, they didn't, he didn't believe that, but a couple of generations down the line, yes, the, the oligarchy's kids, grandkids, great grandkids ended up actually believing that stuff. And then it gets messy. Um, so Charles really, I'm sure he has the same belief systems of his grandmother that, you know, there's this direct continuity of the line of Jesus Christ that had babies with Mary Magdalene, didn't really, you know, die on the cross. And and uh, and the, the the holy bloodlines are now the royalty of, uh, of Saxe-Kirby-Goethe changed its name to Windsor. And, and you know, they're going to be in a position now to usher in a new age a new age. Uh, so they've all got their own spin on what that new age is going to look like, but it's all, it all it is premised on certain ideas of like purgative violence. We need a, a massive bloodletting and it takes different varieties. You know, you got the Jabotinskyite groupings in, in radical uh, sects of, uh, of blood and soil cults of Zionism, which are of the view that, you know, we have to make the Messiah come the first time he didn't come they, because, you know, the, the Jews don't think that the Messiah came. So they're like, okay, we have to burn the earth usher in a situation of massive global death in order for the Messiah come to restore order the first time around. And then you got the George Bush, you know, fundy Christians on the other side saying, yeah, we kind of agree with you, but he already came. We have to make him come a second time. And so they work together, <laughs> you know, to burn the earth. And, and they actually think ideologically that, you know, yeah, maybe we should be burning the earth. And, and you got so many different varieties. You got varieties that are been created for sects within Islam, within uh, groupings, within um, Hinduism even. Um, with with Shiva cult that have been retooled uh, to to promote the sort of idea of a blood of a purge, uh, all of these things. Oh, are it's like math. It's like they 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 see that all this partly truth and partly misinformation in all different religions and different cults, etc. And then uh, what I can hear is like there's so much vamp vampiring or just like sucking all your energy they exist they live they thrive because they can suck everyone's energy yeah i mean you know they're they're they they get off on on certain very unnatural things um yeah that's part of i think the the uh the entire atrocity of this whole system of of, of organizing society or in a certain way is that they they tune their own children the, like the, the children that go through that are born into some of these upper level families and that have like, let's say the, even the lower dynasties, right? The Rothschild. Cause I, I would say that even though the Rothschilds wield political clout and power, if you look at the Rothschilds as a dynasty that was created, it's a, it's kind of a new nouveau riche. They were created in the middle of uh, 18th century um, under Amschel. Amschel was a good sociopath. He did his job well, that he was assigned by the Venetian bankers who employed him and deployed him to carry out certain, acts of economic terror, uh, certain speculative acts, certain modes of, of, you know, usury. 
and they rewarded him by giving him more more um, managerial powers that he did well. And uh, he did his job so well, he took a lot of risks that he was um, provided a certain little originally a mini family dynasty as a, as a family mercenary uh, dynasty. And, you know, his kids did a good job. His grandkids did a good job. They were increasingly given access to upper level conditioning, you know, higher privileges and in, in being part of the upper level schools within, uh, within Cambridge or, or rights of indoctrination. And, um, and they carried out certain jobs. Now they, part of that job was you do the enforcement that, I mean, part of economic warfare is monetary warfare. So the, one of the swords wield is through the purse. Now that doesn't mean that the, 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 the control of the money is the source of the, the power because it's, it's like you can, they're willing to destroy 99% of their own money to maintain power. And that's what they do every time they initiate a, a, a hyperinflationary blowout of, of a, of a target uh, nation is, you know, the, the bankers make a lot of money. They make money out of nothing. And at a certain point they trigger the blowout. So that the money's not worth anything anymore. But what has happened is that everybody in the know has taken that time to buy up all of the physical assets. We saw this with the South Sea bubble in Britain in the, that exploded in 1720. We saw it again in, in the tulip bubble before that. We saw it in every single bubble of the 19th century. Every time these, these bubbles don't just organically happen. They're carefully initiated to have a wealth transfer of the physical reality, the food production, the industrial base, the, the real estate into the hands of those in the, know, in the know who are blowing up the bubble, right? And then all of the idiots who, who believe in the, the stories of the free market or anything else, they're busy thinking that they're gambling on the, on the markets gonna, and that they're going to make big returns on Bitcoin or whatever. They're not even looking at the physical reality. They're the ones who are being set up to watch their money disappear when the system is, is, is pinpricked, right? That's what's going on today. Um, so the, it's not who makes, who controls the money per se that has the, the, the power. It's who controls the, the, the logic of the system as a whole. It's the system that is more valuable. So even though the Rothschilds, they have clout and, you know, you see like, yeah, Charles getting his like shoulder poked by, uh, by <laughs> Lord Rothschild. Um, Lord Rothschild still has himself a certain glass ceiling because both the Royals, as well as, uh, the Rothschilds both have, um, a certain glass ceiling that they themselves can't penetrate. I would say on a, on a bloodline level, you'll never have the Royals who are like the Royal bloodlines, whether it's in the Netherlands or whether it's in, uh, Sweden, you could, you could trace these things back. They even make it available in the, in the Burke's book of peerage. They, they make a lot of these things available. You never really have the uh, the contamination of the bloodlines by lowly Jews. That there's there's like a glass ceiling. They let they let them marry like lower nobility, but not higher nobility. So you have sort of that, and you have organ. I think what we have to sort of infer by triangulation, because I mean part of secret societies is that things are secret, and you have to sort of in, in like get at them through indirect manners, which can be a little bit messy sometimes. That's where. You have to be somewhat careful before passing, you know, uh, coming to a conclusion about what these, what we know is that there are secret societies that have, that have a continuity that, that orchestrate and keep control of institutions um, and certain behavior of upper level family, uh, families, how many children they're allowed to have, right? Because that even the, within the upper level families, you have certain fondies, certain limited uh, pr uh, property that is inherited going back to the days of ancient Venice and, and ancient Rome, 
that's one of the ways that the the family units within Italy, within England, within Germany, within you know the Netherlands, the way these families are are kept under control is via the property management. Who manages the property, right? Such that it's divvied up by the heirs of each family. If you have too many kids, that doesn't work. So they have to encourage and you know all certain members of the groupings to engage in other forms of sexual satisfaction that don't involve giving uh creating children as far as like an inner population control for the elite you can't have too many now the thing is as above so as below so the the organizing ethic and mechanisms of the inner elite at the head of the pyramid have to filter down in various ways to the lower echelons as well so you have similar misanthropic modes of of feeling and thinking about human beings as being these vicious you know uh scum made in the image of mud, right? That That is being fed through fake pseudoscience, through uh, cultural products, you know, films, movies, video games, that all, comic books, that all reinforce similar, very bestialized ideas of human nature. That's, that's how they believe, because the oligarchy believes that themselves, that human beings are these bestialized, ugly things that have to be managed, right? But they want their victims to also have that same identity to want to be managed or to not know how to refute the idea that we're not overpopulated. Because if, you know, you might not like being under a, a master class of, of sociopaths, but if who think you're overpopulated, but if you can't love something really beautiful about humankind, you cannot possibly refute their arguments that there's only so many resources to go around. Can you, can you deny that? Right. Aren't, isn't Calcutta, look at Calcutta. Do you want the world to be like Calcutta? Aren't they overpopulated? You know, and if, if you don't, again, have that sense of, well, why are why is there overpopulation issues in Calcutta? Why is there poverty and economic injustice? If you don't know about that and, and you have this other view that, no, and human beings are these rapacious, terrible things, you're screwed. You could know all about the conspiracy theories and 9-11 and everything else you want. If you have those cynical views, the self-hating views of, of human nature, it doesn't matter what you know. You're... It's just a matter of time before you you have to take your suicide pill, <laughs> you know. Um, so now we're in a situation where, you know, I don't think we have any. We have no time limit, right? What, what do you guys got? We're grand, we're grand, and just just on yeah. the secret societies because I know yeah. our our virus, the guy that's Philip that wants to return. Yeah. I seen him heading the Freemasons where he was like leading it, but I know people that are in it. It's like they've got different versions of it because there's people going, listen, you're wrong. People I know that are very good. So it looks like to me, I don't know what your own experience of what you've seen, but it looks like they've got a few little dabbles that are out there that are basically, you know, they're not, they're not the evil ones. They don't, they don't go through the same kind of, because I've heard of another guy that told me he wasn't in it, but his father and his grandfather and, the initiation is sick, what they go through. And it's basically the different levels that you do. It's like, oh, you'll do that. Then you go up to the next level. And that's how these people then become, you know, yeah. that they have no emotions. They, they, they don't care. Killing millions of people doesn't mean nothing to them. Yeah, no, I think that what you just said is very important. And it's, it's, a, it's a nuance which is not identified by a lot of people trying to make sense of the conspiracies that shape our, our lives and our history. They, because you've got this problem of um, uh, pattern formation thinking. It, 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 I find this very annoying at a certain point because there's a lot of people who use this. I mean, this is what, what computers do. Computers are trained 
in a logarithmic form of thinking that utilizes two two modes of act, of of mental action. Um, one is is deductive, the other is inductive. Another word for it is a posteriori and a priori modes of logic of of the actions of how you come to conclusions through through either starting with specific empirical data and you look for patterns and through the patterns you have you know um certain preset judgments like if you see this pattern it means uh z if you see x it means conclusion z if you see a pattern that we associate with symbol v it means conclusion blue uh you know so there's these certain like programs that the programmer puts in and then every time such a pattern that approximates uh, the template show up Thus, the conclusion is made of something general, right? So start with specific trees. Here's the nature of the forest, right? Here's the generality. Or inversely, you have the other kind that's called a priori thinking, which is more of a, what you'd consider from, let's say, Euclid or Aristotle's uh, mode of mental uh, teachings, which is you start with the universal assumptions and you use certain assumptions that are general, that are universal, to identify or make sense or in, infuse value into specific things your senses pick up, right? Um, all, everything with four legs that is sat on is a chair. It's like, okay, that is my universal, right? Everything that is four legs that is sat on is a chair. Okay, so then you see a specific and you're like, okay, that guy riding this thing, you know, with a saddle, that must be a chair, right? It's like, no. It just has four things and he's sitting on it. Didn't <laughs> there's something else? It's a horse. So um, that that's that's what computers do, and they're limited to different uh, mixtures of those two forms of, of of mental action. Unfortunately, our current school system and any form of of oligarchical um, control systems encourage only the cultivation of those two forms of thinking in their target human population. Today. When people say, oh, yeah, computers are going to artificial intelligence is going to replace humanity, you know, and unless and then you get the first assumption that was not proven uh, because they calculate faster and we calculate slower. And thus, by virtue of their fastness, their speed of calculating and doing inductive uh, deductive reasoning processes, we can thus forecast that they will replace us. Well, first of all, again, there are things human minds do that are more than those two things. Those two things are useful. But that's not all we do. They have to be, they're like tools, right? <laughs> the tools are, are tied to other things that computers don't do, like eurekas, uh, nonlinear leaps um, through discovery concepts, right? Flashes of inspiration, insight, uh, metaphor. Computers make bad metaphor. They make bad In jokes. Intuition. Right? <laughs> yeah, intuition. Yeah. Uh, insight, insight, right? Like, you know, uh, at a certain point, you can learn the piano and all of the the mechanisms of the piano sure you have to kind of technically go through the arduous process and it's kind of pain in the arse but at a certain point when you really know it and if you have some inspiration right you haven't let that die you can start playing you can start creating things that are are not in any way evident in the rules of what you're doing right you could lawfully break your rules which is what johann sebastian bach did with his uh, preludes and fugues. He totally broke all of the rules after he mastered them. He pushed himself to the limits. Rembrandt does it too in his methods of painting, utilizing light, and it's it's like play. You have a freedom now when you really have true knowledge to be governed by insight. You have insight into the process, right? Um, 
it's it's more than the sum of its parts. So computers don't do that. They don't have insight. They don't have they don't have intuition. They don't they don't do any of those things. They're they're garbage in, garbage out. Ultimately, what you put program in is all that they're able to do. And there are some forms of computer learning that could take experiences and incorporate them into their logarithm so that they don't redo something which they were programmed to recognize as being bad. That's fine. That's why that's why computers will always be able to get better at chess and beat human chess players. I think that that's an invariant thing. Computers are destined to kick our ass in chess. Can computers create a better game of chess? No. Chess is a, a fake, it's like a fake infinite. You have an infinite amount of choices in chess, but the choices that are apparently infinite are still bounded by the fundamental rules of chess and that limited sized board, right? You, you, so it's, it's a fake infinite. It, it's a fake set of choices in that sense. Um, and that's how the oligarchy works. They get us, they get their victims to play by rules of the game that seem to have infinite choice, but they're not. They're bounded by certain specific false assumptions that are wrong when you think about them. So we don't have to live in a world of diminishing returns and fight for scraps. That's what we're told we have to do. But it's not true. We can make new discoveries. We can create more abundance. We can create more free energy. And then through that, say to the Malthusians, well, where's the carrying capacity? You know, it, it, it was low when we were ignorant of these different things. And now it's very different. We can sustain more people because now we've made these discoveries that you said we couldn't make. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me, Matthew, on the fact that um, our nature is like multidimensional or just coming from different, just different um, angles and different levels. And if I guess if we could continue to remember that about our multidimensionality, then we don't have to be like, uh, um, be focused on all that conspiracy in terms of who's evil and who's doing this, who's doing that. I mean, it's good to know those things, but then we can also pinpoint on what was really the original, like as example in the founding of the um, America, right? And because now it's like, sometimes I find like either uh, some people we just hate America or love America and there, there's no room for like maybe they were part of this fifth column also. They were part of this monarchy agenda. So, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I just thought that, you know, I, that, that keeps coming in my mind. And when they did all that, when you were saying on the, the way they, uh, like uh, for Prince Charles, right? The role that it's all about, like all the good deeds, that the charitable things, it's like they hit it in that, dimension of like if it's multi dimensional on our heart are are the weakness of our heart the weakness of our compassion the weakness mm -hmm. of loving others yeah. so like they they knew that was a weakness but that was also separate there was no integration and that's what i think what you're talking about is it couldn't be just a priori and this but it has to find a way to integrate and really come up with that assessment that it is it makes the civilization it makes people's lives better you know yeah no i think that uh hg wells once said this very i probably the most clearly of anyone i know as far as somebody who was uh, assigned to be a grand strategist you know hg wells is not just this like benign uh science fiction writer um he was a direct prodigy of of thomas huxley the controller of charles darwin um he was assigned a certain 
um, mission in life to be, and that's what he did as part of the Fabian society. That's what he did at both in his nonfiction, his open conspiracy, his new world order, as well as in his fiction works. It's, it's all very politically charged and tied to something that, well, first he said this thing, which is that the greatest um, advantage that the British empire has is people's unwillingness to think of evil because we're good. You know, ultimately there was a recognition in that statement which is that the those tar the targets the the victims you intend to enslave to become mind spiritual psychophysical slaves are themselves good we our 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 baseline is to sympathize you see with children right they don't discriminate based on uh, skin tone racial color or anything you get little babies to together in a playpen they'll they will play together organically hell you even see this in in, in if you want to be a, even people who say oh we're just like beasts uh, you know, in the law of the jungle. It's like, yeah, but you know, even there you find that breaking down in different ways. There's thousands of videos on YouTube of like a, a mom tiger who is, who will adopt baby piglets just because she senses that there's something innocent and vulnerable and that caters to her nurturing instinct, which is like, why would she do that? That is like, there's no Darwinian law that accounts for how this happens all over the place, right? Lions adopting little baby antelopes after they kill the mom they're like wait a minute okay <laughs> you're, you're a baby <laughs> you're mine now <laughs> it's like what the hell so you find that these these presumptions of a universe of of that's at war with itself is actually not true that's something that's being fed to us and human beings we we look for the good in others we project um but you know from our our own innocence we'll project and assume the best of another and our unwillingness to think that somebody who speaks so beautifully and says such nice things and appeals to my feelings and my emotions could possibly have an evil intention. No, no, no. They, they sound like me, you know, like that's what Obama does. Like, like people who of the Obama ilk, they're trained in schools of rhetoric and sophistry to mirror, right? You have very sympathetic modes of, of speaking. And it doesn't mean that that's necessary. It doesn't mean that everybody who that's, that's, that's part of what human beings do, right? It doesn't mean that just by being a sympathetic speaker, it means you're evil. It just means they're using these things as techniques. They don't actually have anything that that is authentic within them. Like Martin Luther King does it too, right? He's a very, you know, persuasive think uh, speaker, but he actually is willing to die for principles and he's willing to also challenge his audience to become better. He's not flattering his audience the way, let, let's say, a Biden or Obama is trained to flatter their audience, Right, and then demonize the the audience that they don't like. Um, that's not really their audience. Um, so it's it, that's demagoguery. That's different. So the, uh, just, the just on that because I've I've seen plenty of people on stage with that charisma, and people are just in awe of them. You know, like people that are coming across as if they're, you know, promoting wellness and mindfulness and everything. But once you go connect with them one-on-one, -on -one, try to have a conversation, you actually pick up on it. Like these people have the ability to project that, but they don't, when you when you connect with them, when you're, I think, when the light is within you, I don't know your experience of that because you yeah. must, I mean, you must meet a lot of people, but you, you can see the people that people are in awe of, but when you meet them, you go, if they could only see this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, no, this is a steak oil salesman. Why can't you see it? It's it's very clear. Well, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I got the sense a lot with you know people 
we're fawning over Justin Trudeau here. I'm in Canada. You know, there's there's a big aura around the Trudeau family. Um, and his father has this sort of like pr- princely type of aura. He's like a prince of a prince. And there's, it's this weird thing. And, you know, you, you just listen to him for like 10 minutes. And it, he's so unauthentic. Like there's nothing there. And I was like trying to bring this up to, to you know, people. Like there's nothing going on. Can't you see it? <laughs> it's nothing. There. And now, I mean when there's a crisis and he's assigned to actually kill, you see him, he's got no problem killing. <laughs> so that, and a lot of people who had a romantic idea of him have, have uh, that's, that's disappeared, but still some people are, are still addicted to their Kool-Aid. But as you said, yeah, when you get them indivi- individually, you'll often find, yeah, I, I've agreed. I agree with you totally. They're, 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 they're trained to think of the masses as sort of a beast to be enchanted in a, using hypnotic techniques um, narrative framing, close your eyes, think of this. And it, it, it works for the, the masses. But as we know, you get people out of a mass collective behavior, they're very, it's a very different dynamic. People will do things both for good and for bad, usually for bad, when you get them in a collective and you get a mob to form, right? People will do things in a mob that they would never individually do, right? They will kill in a mob where individually they'd be like, no, we should, why are we, why are we beating this person to death? <laughs> you know, um, but so that, that same demagogue will then, like you said, they have no ability to relate to an individual. They don't, they don't have that. They don't think of their, themselves that way because they've got an arrogant, prideful ego complex, which situates them. As soon as you have that elitism awoken in you, you can't really be an authentic person, right? You can't, cause that part, part of that is just feeling what other people feel. That's what human beings do, right? Beating with the other person's heart and, uh, and, and putting yourself in their shoes, even, even if you disagree with them you could still actually have good relations with people who you disagree with on certain logical things because you could both see that you're authentic. You're both trying to figure things out. Right. And, uh, and it's just losing your own ego a little bit in that process, not losing, but just detaching yourself from being governed by it, which is a human thing. And again, Martin Luther King is able to speak vulnerably hum- with humility in front of his audience and talk about his own weaknesses and, um, and, and, and be very serious about it, you know, um, and again, it's, it's, it's something which oligarchs, they lose their humanity. And, and this is, I think the thing with evil is you have to be quite good. You have to work on your own goodness in order to properly, um, identify evil or talk about it. You can't just, a lot of people, they try to talk about the evils of secret societies, but they didn't take the time to work on themselves. I see this all the time. And, you know, the last two years has been a big growth curve for a lot of people who had been normies their entire lives, you know, ignoring the cultivation of their own minds and hearts, just being happy to, to be part of the, you know, the normie club. And all of a sudden a crisis hits. They're like, oh shit, there's a fire everywhere. And they're all trying to like figure things out super fast, being very hectic about it. And there's like, I'd say like 80% of the conspira- conspiracy audience that's out there. They're all like trying to quickly like make sense of things they should have been doing now for d- decades. They wasted a lot of time. And now they're skipping steps and they're immediately jumping into all sorts of, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of theories that have been created there for them to um, fall into from hyper QAnon variants and, and other things. And they're willing to just believe anything as long as it, it acknowledges that there's like, like a, a depopulation agenda, Satanists, all these things are true. Right, bankers conspiracy. But, but just like there's so many people, they let the ego in the way. Like when I'm wrong, or does I have a thought process, and then I learn something, 
even from you and some of the previous shows. I, I go, didn't realize that. Then I go, I then I go and do my own research. I was like, okay, that's what I have no problem kind of admitting yeah. that I was wrong. But there's so many people, their ego gets in the way, and they don't want to do that. Well, I think it's it's like this this computer thinking, you know, like they're they're what you just described, and that that's what I'd also try to do. Like we we all have in finite knowledge, incomplete knowledge of everything, but we can know certain things that we can build on, right? If it's like that, that's learning to see with the mind's eye instead of the physical eyes, you know, you, you make a little discovery and then that becomes your standard for judging or for building upon other discoveries that may not even be connected to directly to the field that you just made a discovery in, but you can build with from, from knowledge to knowledge, to knowledge, to knowledge, and build um, a, a, a mapping in your mind of, of, uh, a worldview tied to not blind assumptions, not blind rules, right? Not pattern formation, but real, like you have a living sense, which is, which is limited, but the process is very dialectic. You know, you, you're like, okay, I'm testing my theory out. It works. It works. It works. Oh, it broke here. Right. I map it onto reality. It, it seems to work pretty well. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's not fitting in this one place I was looking at. That's a paradox, right? A paradox hits and it, or a cognitive, cognitive dissonance, whatever you want to call it. And like, a natural thing would be, oh, that's cool. That there's something to discover there that I didn't know. And then you can go and like figure things out and like work it coming up with a better solution concept that resolves, that creates a harmony where there was a dissonance, a dissonance. And you learn, you build up something that has firm foundations. And uh, I think in, in a, if you had a proper education system that we were, that we should have been given, though we weren't, that would be something that would be, that would be an instinct we would have had cultivated when we were kids, you know, like little kids are always going up outside of their comfort zone when they're trying to learn to walk or learn language. Like they're never sticking with reading things they already agree with because they don't know how to read or saying things they already think because they don't know how to say. So they're always trying to model themselves off of excellence, off of that, which is beyond their cap their capacity. And they have to try, 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 fail, 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 and then figure something out and do it again and, and develop an, uh, an instinct for walking. You develop a sense of balance. You develop a sense of speaking. Um, not, not the words, but the actual flow, right? And, um, and, and that should be something we cultivate in a school system as we mature so that when we're adults and we're like 70, 80 years old, we're still doing that in a better and better way. We, we've maintained the childlike within us. And that's what I think Jesus and Confucius also said that, um, well, Jesus said only the, the, the child, only those who are childlike will make it into the kingdom of heaven. And uh, Confucius also said something very similar that uh, uh, the, 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 the true leader is somebody who is held on to their inner child. And, uh, and it's the same ultimate truth that's being tapped into. You, you just have to have the humility of a child, the love, the awe and love of, and wonder of that, which is beyond your knowledge and the, 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 uh, strength to pursue it. And if you have those things, you can, you're fine. You're good. You know? Um, so instead we're, we're conditioned to get the right answer that, uh, you know, our teacher wants us to have a certain answer the, the textbook wants us to have a certain answer. Do we have to understand why the formula is true? No, we don't need to know that. And in fact, if you ask your teacher half the time or most of the time, they won't know. They just know the Pythagorean theorem is the Pythagorean theorem because A squared plus B squared equals C squared. It's like, but why, teacher? It just is. It works, okay? Just, do you want to pass the test? And, uh, you know, for me, like, it's the same thing when you read Albert Pike and Morals and Dogma. He puts, this is this is interesting. 
if you actually have taken the time to replicate what Pythagoras went through, he must have when he was like working with right angle triangles, which are, you know, sections in a circle. That's all parts of, of, of spherics actually. Um, though we don't, we don't learn it that way, but if you actually look at the right angle triangle, okay, you got a smaller, two smaller parts and a bigger part, right. That you can make a square out of. So one side squared, the other, the, the short side squared, the long side squared, and the hypotenuse of the triangle is the longest side squared. The two small squares added together will make, will accumulatively make the big square, the C squared physically, right? Why is that true? Now, for those who have actually, you can go through and, and, and re and figure it out. You can actually map out and create a, a geometric, not mathematic, but geometric construct. Very easy. Any kid could do this at the age of six, seven years old. If they're, if they're given the right sort of, um, goading from a teacher that can, that can excite the kid, a kid can figure this out. Um, they, aha, Eureka. I figured I can prove it now. I know why these two and this bigger one, same area. I, I can, I know that. Now, <clears throat> if you do that, you can now go further and build on that to discover why self-similar spiral action, what, like, why is it that you have a process of growth function, which we can call logarithmic, where you can grow uh, the length of, of a line arithmetically, right? From one to two, from two to four, from four to eight. You can do that while at the same time having an area function. So the area of one, the area of two, the area of four, so four squared, two squared, one squared, eight squared, that area function grows at a different rate, but at the same time. So you have an incommensurable growth rate. So something linear and geometric are growing at the same time. And you can get these different types of spirals from either the doubling of a square, right? That just always gets bigger and you get a spiral function. It, it's, it's a transcendental function. And you could prove why that's happening. You could then also prove why there's certain categories of these transcendental functions right? Self-similar. So you, the same quality of proportion of, of, of this line, right? Uh, of this type of right angle triangle will be able to grow, maintaining its proportions and will, will have that same type of, of characteristic infinitely to the larger, to the small. Some, at some cases, there's a category of golden section. There's a certain ratio that's hit that you can figure out whereby you get a, a certain golden section ratio. You can get it in when you construct a pentagon, right? And you could start seeing that there's certain air sides of the pentagon and you could build a little square inside the pentagon and see that like the short to the long has a certain relationship that is very unique and very special. We see it in nature. We see it in living things, especially. We also noted that the ancient Greeks and even Egyptians had utilized it in the construction of paintings, of sculpture, and of, of architecture. We see it in the, the Florentine uh, Renaissance architects like Brunelleschi, who also understood and applied this. We see it in, all over the place. Now, this is something which appeals kind of like a harmony. It's a visual harmony that appeals to the soul in a very organic way. It's a very aesthetically pleasing thing. But again, it's there in nature, in living things. We don't see it in non-living things, really. But you can only discover what the nature of the golden section is if you've actually proven the Pythagorean theorem geometrically. If you've just memorized the formula as symbols to be repeated to get a good answer on the test or to become a technician working in engineering and not knowing what the, the symbols actually are shadows of, you can't actually truly understand the golden section either. You can only know it as a mystical incantation, a symbol. And that's, again, when you read Albert Pike, it, it, it that was a big part of my growth process too in, in, in going through this. So I, Matthew, obviously 
Oh, let me just finish this quickly. Oh, no. Albert Blake doesn't know what he's talking about. He's he's attributing values to the golden section to Pythagoras as part of the rites of initiation in the higher degrees. But there's no display of actual knowledge of what the, the Pythagorean theorem or the golden section is. He actually doesn't know. So it's a, it's a form of brainwashing for an elite, which is similar but different from the brainwashing we're given in the lower level school systems. That's all I want to say is my punchline. But yeah, oh, sorry. Were you I was going to make a comment that just listening to you and sh everything with all your animation of describing it, it's obvious that you some, somewhere in your growing up, you didn't lose that childlike curiosity and creativity. So I think the one key important thing, especially for parents who may be watching this, well, how, how, yeah, how do we make sure that our children will continue to have that childlike curiosity? Because if that stays in you, then it is possible that it could be replicated with others. That's a nice, that's a nice statement. Thank you. Um, I, I would say that it did, it did beat me down though. Like I, I did lose it, uh, for a long time. And, um, for me, it was, uh, I, I, I sort of had it rekindled. Maybe you could say when I, when I became a political activist, I, I had been through, you know, I made my own discoveries, uh, on nine 11, stuff like that. And back in 2003, um, and it was, um, a painful process as it is for many people, you know, life is a giant, you know, <laughs> make believe fantasy created by sociopaths that want to kill you. And, you know, like, ah, ouch. So I, that was, that was a, a disappointing couple of years. Um, but at a certain point I, uh, I you discovered, reclaimed it. I reclaimed it. Yeah. And, and it helped that I, I got a politically active around the organization I mentioned earlier. Uh, I was involved with them between, uh, of Lyndon LaRouche. There was a Canadian outlet of about eight or nine people in, in Montreal, that was the Canadian branch of the American LaRouche organization. And, you know, there was, it, it, it was a small outfit, but what was good is that there was a focus on a, a curriculum, which LaRouche, the old, the old wise man had, had put, he basically said, you know, we got to focus on, on, on giving younger people an opportunity to read original texts of those who made great discoveries. Like, and, and so I, I jumped in at a, at a point and originally I, I got involved going to their office and, and volunteering based on their political outlook, which was in, in harmony with, with what I also believed. You know, they were talking about stop the depopulation agenda. You know, it made sense why LaRouche was describing the economic collapse, why it was going to happen. And I was like, huh, that makes a lot of sense. It's being set up to, to blow. And this is back in 2006 that uh, I was coming around. And um, I disagreed with some things, but overall, I was like, okay, at least you're you're focusing on the goodness of human beings. The idea that the oligarchy is not all powerful; they do seem to have these weak spots. Um, that's good, and you have practical, um, reasonable policies that I understand can work feasibly. Although I didn't believe it was possible, I was like, at least I understand they're in harmony with the good, and they could work if we could extract ourselves of these of this death cult. Okay. Um, and what I would say without harmony is it's in resonance with you. And I say that you did, you didn't just reclaim it. You reawaken it because I be, I believe that it would, you've had it all along. So it, because, or else you won't be able to tap into it. You have it. So oh, yeah. you yeah, have yeah. others have it. 
It's just a matter of when to really yeah, yeah, yeah. it yet. Well, that's the thing. Like, yeah, we wouldn't have souls if if we didn't have the fire, right? And the way I I I, I sort of tend to think of um, like I I would organize. So the way one of the things that I did. So there are two things. One was a bit grueling, but often still very. I learned a lot, which is table organizing. So almost every day of the week, I spent with with a few of my colleagues, often younger members, some older ones, but there weren't very many. We'd have a political table with with literature, signage, you know, provocative signs um, to attract conversation. And we'd go out and we'd just set up a table and we'd try to talk to people, um, you know, get them to read things, get them to come to a meeting, whatever. Um, and it was, it was, it was a cycle. I did this for, like I said, about five days a week. Um, and you try to get their, their, you know, contact information to call them, organize them, try to get them to come to a, again, a meeting, ideally become, you want them to volunteer to help out in other ways. And, um, and it's demoralizing because a a lot, you know, 80% or more of your time, you're like dealing with people acting very ugly, right. Walking, walking by and like calling you very bad things. And, you know, they all, every, everyone's a norm, like try to talk to normies, right. It's, it's, it's sometimes very difficult and discouraging. And it was only when I would shift my gears and focus on the, the, their soul. Cause I was like, okay, everybody is a soul They're They have an immortal soul, but they don't know it. They've been trained to think it doesn't exist. And, and I would start focusing my mind on looking at like these little cinders. It's like there. And when I would talk to them, my focus was more on trying to, to provide oxygen to the cinder right in my in my discussion i want to provide i want to get the kindling going it's it the, the fire is live there's heat there <laughs> but you got to like be very careful you know when you're when you're trying to like create a fire you know at, at first it's very fragile it can go out very easily and you have to be very gentle with it you got to blow just right on it uh in order to get the fire to to grow and at a certain point you ideally you want it to be a self-feeding fire where you can walk away from it you know enjoy the heat right have the fire just do its own thing and i think that there, there's that there's that threshold where the the learning process at first is somewhat arduous and you lose a lot of people there are really good people i would talk to and we'd have great conversations they'd be wow thank you so much i didn't realize that like yeah okay and you know they, they take a they take a, a leaflet or a, or a magazine that i would that i would sell them or give them and i'd call them um you know a week later they're like ah don't don't call me anymore i'm like what what happened what happened to the, to the last seven days? What, what, you know, they just got back into their their mode. Really, they didn't have that self feeding fire yet. But there would be some cases, and I think I was I was one of those cases where it's like you make enough discoveries, and some people had to work with me for a while and fight with me because I was being a sophist. I was I was acting like I knew shit I didn't know. And uh, you know, at a certain point, I was like, okay, I had to learn humility again, and and discover that I and I, I think it was actually through the the Pythagorean theorem. You know, I, I acted like I knew it. And so, cause I was, Oh, that was it. That was it. I felt like I knew the golden section and somebody asked me, well, can you build the Pentagon? If you know the golden section, I was like, yeah, I could build a Pentagon. They're like, go do it. And I drew it. I was like, yeah, see, it's Pentagon. Cause I, I, I studied secret societies, you know, and I felt like I knew things by my studies. And I, I and they're like that. You just eyeballed it. You didn't, pr- you didn't build it. You didn't prove why it's why each of the five sides are equal within a circles uh, circumference. You didn't do that. And I was like, I guess I didn't do it. So like, okay. <laughs> so I went back to the dry board. I was like, okay, how do I prove it? Um, and it took me a while, but I, I learned humility through these little things. And I, I realized, okay, if I don't know these little things, maybe I don't know some bigger things. And and so for me, the, the educational process of going through the writings of Kepler. So, you know, like a couple of days a week on Saturdays and, and Sundays, Sunday would be like a 10 hour day. 
where the younger the younger people uh, who were volunteers would just read Plato. We'd, we'd spend a couple hours just reading a dialogue, working it through on, on the nature of virtue, justice, uh, whatever. Um, read the Plato dialogues, right? And then we'd work on Kepler because, you know, Kepler discovered certain universals regarding the harmonic behavior of, of planets around a sun um, using certain Pythagorean harmonic ratios that were at the heart of his three laws. So nobody reads Kepler. We study, we maybe memorize his three laws if we're lucky, but we don't actually study Kepler's writings, which he left beautifully there, making his mind transparent for, for future generations. Nobody is allowed. His works were only translated into English in 1991, The Harmony of the Worlds. Like, my God, you know, Isaac Newton, who, who actually plagiarized the discoveries of people like Leibniz and Kepler and reduced everything. They took out the soul of the discovery and reduced it to the shell of a formula called the inverse square law. That's what we're told to memorize. They translated Newton's Principia into like 40 languages in the first year of it being published. Kepler, you had to wait 400 years for just like one translation to happen badly into English. Um, Is that so when they separated science and spirituality? It had always been, there had always been a problem um, merging or at least finding the natural union of the two but it got really bad under under newton yeah and the enlightenment so and people are are taught today that the enlightenment this is a, a lie by the way it is not true but we're taught as a standard theory a standard model theory of uh science history is that uh, or history more generally is that the enlightenment grew organically out of the renaissance period which was before the so we had a dark age right then we had a renaissance then we had an enlightenment then we had a ro romantic period of modern of modernism postmodernism and and we're given these ages right and we're told each age grew organically from the previous age very very much completely ignoring any existence of conspiracy theories of oligarchism of agendas that's all ignored it's just like the age creates the man right we don't have any mozarts or, or beethovens or keplers today because we live in the postmodern age. They lived in the Baroque age or the Renaissance age. Now, the Enlightenment was a political operation. And in my research, I am fully persuaded that the, the Renaissance movement was entirely, which was, you know, what sparked, I mean, this is the mid 15th century is when you had the real sparking of the fire of humanity that became the rebirth, the Renaissance, the rediscovery of the method of thinking of Plato, of Homer, uh, thousands of years earlier, right? That was incorporated and infused into Augustinian Christianity. And Augustine was sort of a, a Christian Plato. If you read Augustine, he writes in Platonic dialogues, very humble. And he created a, a social movement, a branch of Christianity, which is very different from a lot of the other splinter groups, um, very, that is very much tied to the idea of a loving God that we're made in the image of. And that just like Plato believed, Teaching is a matter of awakening a flame, not filling a vessel. Aristotle said teaching is like filling a vessel or like writing on a blank slate. Now, the blank slate idea denies the, the existence of any soul that has any uh, qualitative value in the being of the, of the, of the child, it, right? It presumes that that's the blank slate. That's what John Locke re refurbished in the, in the 18th century. So it's, it's that you, you, you're just these automatons to be programmed by a master class to be written upon by the by the social engineers that's all knowledge is is who has the power 
to control the dictionaries that will be fed into the human talking cows as they grow up in their so who has the power to impose their will onto the system and and shape those definitions shape the formulas interpretations that's what aristotle or john locke or any oligarchical thinker says now the the renaissance thinkers like nicholas of cusa um who was one of the major initiators of modern science um Da Vinci, who studied Cusa, um, if, if you look at any of these great scientists, they all firmly understood that their spirituality and their creative and scientific or artistic endeavors were all tied to the same thing. It's all a prayer, a worshiping of the creator. That's that's why you have these beautiful buildings, these beautiful, like the the, the Santa Maria del Fiore, you know, Florentine dome. My God, it's like gorgeous with the amount of work and energy and excellence that one has to hold themselves to to do something like that and the new discoveries you have to make to make it happen over the course of 150 or 180 years to make it fully happen. It was Da Vinci who designed the final golden orb that's put on, on the top. Um, that is only something you do if you are very much connected to a love of the creator and a, and a deep sense of humility. So all of that process accompanied new engineering, new architectural, new canals, new designs, and the idea of teaching orphans, so training through the order of um, the Brotherhood of Common Life, a teaching order that, that for the first time didn't treat orphans like they were junk, but really taught these kids to transcribe and translate original texts from Latin and Greek um, into whatever vernacular or just, you know, and in so doing, they would replicate the process of discovery of the great geniuses of ancient Athens and beyond. Um, and this became the cadre of leadership that gave rise to the advancements in statecraft, the idea that, you know, the king is not just the master of the people, but a servant of the people and an instrument of God's will on earth. So you had a, a quality of kings that arose who were advised by these, these figures um, who put into motion amazing processes that destroyed the power structures of the deep state of the oligarchy in their own kingdoms, that, that made sure that treasuries were funding no longer wars, but rather internal improvements, canals, sanitation systems, uh, new forms of, of technology to benefit people. So you had to look at any population growth. This is what oligarchies are afraid of, is that when you look at the, 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 the human population pattern, like growth, growth charts, it's at that Renaissance moment in that something happened in the 15th century that caused this like relatively stable population that it even had a dip. You know, Europe lost two thirds or a third of their, their people in the Dark Age. It, it goes hyper or it goes geometric. Like you got a serious growth function happening and it doesn't just happen because we're parasites, you know, or, 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 or cancer cells on Gaia, which, which grows also geometrically. It, it happened because we were able to apply the fruits of, of creative divine discoveries in the forms of technological progress that allowed us to have more people at a higher quality of life with longer living standards, lower infant mortality, right? More access to our, our cognitive, mental, psycho-spiritual powers. And that was a fire that had to be put out. And they put it out first by trying to do things like the Inquisition, you know, call anybody who's making a discoverer, a discovery, you know, uh, a witch and burn them, uh, create wars as well. You know, you can't make discoveries if you're, if you're busy fighting each other. Like Kepler's dad was a mercenary, died, uh, you know, because that was the only job. You're a farmer or a mercenary. <laughs> and most farmers had to become mercenaries under whatever feudal lord of Germany that they lived under. So that's what, and you know, that's that's what Kepler's dad did. You know, uh, so <clears throat> the they tried to do it through brute force to put the, the genie back in the bottle. 
uh, through death. Just say the discovery doesn't exist. Kill the discoverers. Make the people who could make discoveries, make them kill each other through religious wars. But that didn't still work. You still had people like Kepler arise and make these, these universals come to life and accessible to human beings, right? Um, so what they did instead is that they said, well, okay, if we can't destroy the discovery dis completely, we'll, we'll at the very least say we like discoveries and we, that is the, the grand strategist of the oligarchy running out of the Royal Academy of London, which was set up after the, under Charles II, right? Um, or the, or Cambridge, the inner, the inner echelons of Cambridge. We'll say that we love discoveries and we're going to control the narrative of how discoveries are made. And so what they started doing is a new technique you could see around the, uh, the middle 17th century in a, in an art, like a serious way is they started stealing the, the, the shells, the formulas, the outward form of the discoveries made by great thinkers. They repackaged them and associated them with, um, autistic, or sociopathic um, operatives like Descartes, Rene Descartes, the, you know, or or Newton, or I mean, there's a whole variety, and they just started creating these cults of personality that were just these geniuses because apples fall on their heads, right? <laughs> we should all be so lucky to have fruit fall on our head and discover a universal principle, and uh, it was very mystical. That's why these people are all into the occult as well. They're not real scientists. They're all, if you look at the real science, like the actual work that they're doing, spending their time on. It's all like numerology, trying to calculate the end of the world, uh, trying to do alchemy, like to create the philosopher's stone and, and avoid cheap death. Like all of these guys are in their own time, not doing science. So who's doing the science? Well, you could, you could find that all of those formulas are actually made by people way before Newton, way before Descartes, and they were stolen. And either the, the person who made the discovery is killed or they're obscured, like Kepler was obscured, um, whatever. And you get this, this worshiping of a new type of secular a uh, cult, a secular um, paganism around the pagan figure of like an Isaac Newton that we now worship to instead of, and we think we're, you know, we all of a sudden think that, okay, the human mind, the logic, Newton proved that the that logic can know universals without any faith in uh, in spiritualism that, that was tied to his discoveries. Now, he was a spiritual guy, but he worshiped to a different, a different, more Luciferian God in reality. <laughs> Yeah. And, and that's why Matthew, um, we and then to our audience as well. There's really we can't stop questioning things. We can't stop searching because I what that one thing I learned a lot from following Matthew is like if if there's you know you gotta know why people are leaders, statesmen you know discoverers were killed or how they died or then if they have certain speeches or reading articles you got to really li listen to that and dissect that and see um because you know as matthew said it's just like uh you know if they they everything is they wanted to just control the narrative matthew there's this uh comment or question i know it's not what you just said but just out of respect for the viewer i just want to see what if you can take any of this he said first he said does matthew follow michael savage and the other one is what does matthew think about the human rights situation in china and can that continue under under the present party in control and um say a little bit more about michael savage i've seen a couple of videos that didn't apply to your question um so what what specifically is it about michael savage uh that you are curious about uh let's see if uh um 
George will comment more. I've heard about Michael Savage. I've, he has this big podcast, and it's kind of like he's one of those also in the conspiracy theory. So I guess he just wanted to know if you. But if I think you don't, if knowing no, I mean, you, I've, you always, are, I've only seen a couple of little interviews, but that were tied more to just general conspiracy. Uh, so I, I'm not something that I followed too closely. Um, so I can't say that I'm really that familiar with Michael Savage. Um, okay. As far as the okay. second part of the question is concerned, um, repeat that. What do I think about the idea of the human rights situation in China, and can that continue under under the present part, party in control? I guess my assumption is that it's the same thing as what was what's being told to us about the you know human rights in in China, and yet oh. no one's talking about human rights in America. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I mean, it, it's yeah. I mean, one of these things is that even the uh, alternative media is being fed material from the CIA, the NED, National Endowment for Democracy operations, which really just make things up. And they have certain um, anecdotal evidence that they'll often use from Uyghurs or from, uh, let's say, people in Tibet who are expats. But if you actually look at on the ground, like what's going on in Xinjiang or what's going on on the ground for people living in Tibet, uh, versus a lot of the German-based uh, Uyghurs or Turkish-based Uyghurs who are often giving testimonials to the National Endowment for Democracy, which has been picked up by Epoch Times. It's picked up by a lot of the the alt media uh, journals. They make shit up. Like they they're they're literally just they're they're in Turkey. They're tied to operations that are directly openly working with the CIA. That's again the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, the the that's funding the World Uyghur Congress. Um, that is then picked up and reamplified with narratives for the mainstream right wing, the mainstream left wing, as well as the non-mainstream off the beaten path right wing too, um, and left wing as well. Although the left wing is mostly all mainstream at this point, as far as I can see. Um, so I haven't seen, I haven't seen as much as people are saying, you know, in actually looking at, uh, the, the claims of, I guess you mean genocide in Xinjiang or genocide in Tibet that the U.S. State Department has been claiming or the British the British government has been claiming uh, the Chinese government are doing. Um, I'm not actually seeing the evidence when I'm looking at the data, the actual data and looking at the actual sentiments of the people living in those regions. I don't see that. Um in Xinjiang, I, I mean, I had a slideshow I chose not to. <laughs> I had like 30 slides. Um, maybe next time. But um, the, the the conversation took on a different form. So it's it is. But you know the the actual evidence is when you look at the practices economically of China through the Belt and Road Initiative into the uh, development of the um, the inland area of the interior of China, you have high speed rail now being built. Um, high speed. Canada has zero. Um, with several lines into Xinjiang um, that go also into that are being there's plans to build the next phase of the corridors into Afghanistan with a major reconstruction project to, to do what the West was not willing to do for Afghanistan, which is build educational facilities, uh, corridors, industrial zones, as well as interconnectivity um, through primarily rail, also other forms of roads um, that would then stretch deeper into that connecting to Pakistan, where there's already, already major developments uh, that have been underway with the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, one of the biggest economic development projects in the world, and which is behind the U.S. State Department's um, coup d'etat that they ran against uh, Imran Khan just a few months ago. Remember that Imran Khan was the former prime minister who was ousted by the U.S. State Department 
under a controlled uh, vote of no confidence with a bunch of assets. And there was a letter from the State Department to the, the Pakistani ambassador warning that if they don't get rid of Imran Khan, who was a very close friend of both Russia and China, then uh, there would be major consequences, economic terror and other things for Pakistan. So Khan was ousted. They did it. There's still there's still a, a fight, but I mean, that was a major victory for the State Department. Um, there's programs for Africa as well that are anti-Malthusian. We have the building of the biggest infrastructure. And again, in, in Xinjiang, we're told several things. One, there's a genocide. They're using slave labor of, of Muslim populations in concentration camps. They are destroying the population. Um, again, genocide on cultural as well as physical levels. That's, that's all we're being told and repeated. The reality is <laughs> you have, uh, what is it, 26,000 mosques that have been built up by China in uh, Xinjiang. There is no cultural genocide in the sense of people not being allowed to practice their religion. You have hundreds of Catholic and Protestant churches that have also been funded and Taoist temples and Buddhist temples as well because you have minority groups there too um, that have been built up. So there's no evidence of any actual no freedom of religion. I mean, that's that's a greater density of mosques than you have anywhere in the United States or Canada um, or Europe even. You have a problem whereby the CIA and their Saudi proxies were funding a radicalization of madrasas um, in, in Afghanistan since the early, early 80s as part of the war against the Soviet Union. That's where Al-Qaeda comes from is through the U.S. taxpayer funded programs through Operation Cyclone of the CIA that create a whole movement of zombie uh, cultists wanting to blow themselves up for uh, for the virgins. That that was deployed as a weaponized faction within Islam that's actually killed more Muslims than it has even white people or non-Muslims. But that's been a, a problem that was created by the CIA. And again, they're, they're Saudi um, operatives. And Afghanistan shares a 75-mile border with China. And China has also suffered from the, the creation of this operation hundreds of terrorist uh, attacks since 2004. Now, the, the difference is that, and how do you deal with, with a cult, a death cult of religious fanatics that have been created by foreign intelligence operations in your own border, right? Like imagine China had, had, had funded a satanic, like actual thousands or millions of satanic suicide, um, you know, cultists in the United States to run terror operations against U.S. government buildings and, 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 and you know, malls and people. That's what was deployed against China. So how do you deal with such a problem? Do you kill all of the cultists? That's not a good idea. That's what the U.S. did when they bombed, you know, <laughs> the Middle East after 9-11, or actually went, went even back earlier to Desert Storm. But um, they basically killed millions directly through bombs and millions more through uh, lack of sanitation hospitals, lack of available food or water, clean water, uh, through just bombing Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, beyond. So you could bomb the countries back to a Stone Age if you want. Uh, China didn't do that. They didn't bomb their countries back to Stone Ages. What they did do is they did set up a educational program where they pulled the most rad radicalized uh, terrorists out of out of the general civilian sector. They got rid of the imams by expulsion or by imprisonment, who were the ones passing passing down the CIA Saudi Wahhabite uh, variant uh, versions of the Quran as part of their recruiting program. Yeah, they they imprisoned them. They damn well did that. But in the same measure. 
if you look at what China did as well, is they created trade schools like we've never seen before. So you have the population, which has both grown in terms of quantity of, of Uyghurs who never had the one-child policy. The entire time there was a one-child policy, the, the Uyghurs were always allowed to have more kids. Um, so were the Tibetan Buddhists. It's just That was just for the Han Chinese that they had the one-child. And I'm not saying the one-child policy was a good idea. It was a bad idea. It was actually done by Henry Kissinger <laughs> it was, and the Club of Rome, um, which are not very Chinese. But that was one of the conditions that was given to China in the, in the 70s for them to be able to access vital factory uh, productive capabilities for them to end their the the self-mutilation that they did to themselves under the cultural revolution so they had a lot of poverty they had to end it and there was an offer being made by the trilateral commission by david rockefeller and, and henry kissinger to say okay we'll give you the means of some production because keep in mind in henry kissinger's mind he wanted the west to become a slave society of consumers that was not economically sovereign and meanwhile you'd have a slave society of dirty producers who would stay too poor with sweatshops on the coastal regions in China to sell cheap crap to the West. So nobody would be sovereign. Everyone would be either too poor or too rich and stupid to have any economic uh, freedom, independence. It's only the middlemen in between that would control things. And that was supposed to be the forever model of a slave master society. That was what Trilateral Commission members like uh, David Rockefeller were promoting in Beijing in the 1980s. So <clears throat> you have this thing where... China has, and they did the one-child policy for that reason. They were like, if you want that, you need to do one-child policy. They, that was a, dis a disastrous policy, and they're still trying to recover to this very day. They've not overcome it. Their, their population levels are still too low. Um, but despite that, the Uyghur population, the Muslims, and the, the Tibetan Buddhists were always allowed to have more kids. Um, now what we have are trade schools grown out of, out of so you learn civil ethics, you learn uh, civics, you learn Mandarin, like you learn language, but you also learn carpentry, you learn engineering, you learn uh, craftsmanship. So from there, what we have is the, the biggest economic growth, longevity of life, powers of production per individual within the Uyghur, as well as in the, the Tibetan regions, has increased at the greatest rates, while in the West, those same factors have all diminished at the same rate as they've grown, because China doesn't want to commit suicide. Now, it, as a consequence... We're being told again a bunch of things that if you if you if you scratch on it, I, I highly recommend Brian Berlitek, who has a YouTube channel called New Atlas. He's an American former uh, military guy. He lives now in uh, Thailand, which he's been living there for about a decade or so. And his analysis is some of the best analysis I've ever seen on uh, the fallacies that have been created around the attack on the Uyghurs, as well as the attacks like the the genocide campaigns apparently being caused by China in Africa or in Tibet. Um, he's also uh, treated the organ harvesting thing that has come out of the uh, a certain Scientology cult. So back in the early 90s, there was a, like I mentioned, the, the oligarchy is good at creating cults. Uh, they're, they're cult creators. And at the head of a cult, they usually have somebody who has a messiah complex uh, who was deployed. Back in the 1850s in China, the first thing we saw was the uh, Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, which was a MI6 or pre-MI6. It was a British Foreign Office steered operation in the middle of the two opium wars, right, um, which created a civil war for about 15 years in China. The, heaven, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom was set up by a figure, a Chinese guy who was um, controlled and handled by a couple of Jesuitical um, British agents who were masquerading as missionaries. 
and um, forgetting his name, but he basically was led to the belief through a certain set of controlled mystical experiences that he was the brother of Jesus. And he set up a breakaway separatist grouping, again, called the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, operated, I think, about a, a third of China's territory to become its own, its own sovereign state. Britain was on the verge of even recognizing its independence. And they had a, a civil war with a very weakened, corrupt uh, Qing dynasty, which had been weakened by its own internal corruption as well as by, you know, opium war. Um, that was a devastating thing. So China got their first sort of burn by foreign created uh, civil wars using terrorist quasi pseudo religious cults. And uh, it, it's happened throughout the 20th century on several other occasions where similar cults were created to undermine and destroy the social fabric from within. These are not honest. There, there are honest Christian missionaries in China that, that have done good work. I'm not saying that they're not there, but you also have these other things that are all also there that did a lot of damage. So coming out of the early 90s, right when uh, Gorbachev was, you know, the New World Order was being announced and Gorbachev was... Uh, uh, preparing the ground for the destruction of, of Russia, which was overseen by Yeltsin and the IMF. So Russia was supposed to be wiped off the map. It was going to be a unipolar age. Soros had his operative named uh, Zhao Ziyang, who, who co-managed a think tank with George Soros called the New Economy Foundation. It's part of this NEDCIA operation to do what they did to Russia, but do it to China. And that was also, also supposed to happen in the 1990s carve it up, break it up into, you know, diverse little mini federations under the control of the IMF and World Trade Organization. So Zhao Ziyang became the chairman. First, he was premier. He he's the one who brought in David Rockefeller into Beijing with the Trilateral, Trilateral, Trilateral Commission in the early 80s. He is the one who then became uh, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. The highest position you can get in China was headed by the agent directly of George Soros for two years from 87 to 89. Now, the thing that was supposed to happen at that moment was a color revolution very similar to what we saw with the Maidan in Ukraine using violent uh, fifth columnist operatives that were deployed to kill and burn alive um, Chinese soldiers, of which there were about 39 soldiers burnt alive. You could see images of their corpses. They weren't even allowed to have carry guns, uh, just like in Maidan, right? They didn't. They were not allowed by the Chinese government to even carry guns. But what began in Tiananmen Square as a peaceful protest of uh, students who were suffering from economic injustice caused by Zhao Ziyang's uh, IMF-driven policies, keep in mind. Um, so they came out in protest and it quickly became, just like in the Maidan or any color revolution, a very violent operation with a coordinating sector being in the U.S. Embassy run by a CIA uh, operative, a high-level CIA agent named uh, James Lilly, who was the uh, U.S. ambassador. George Bush Sr. was on the ground in uh, Tiananmen Square, as was Gene Sharp, the, the, the modern godfather of color revolutions. Um, they were all planning the thing out. And the idea was that it was supposed to be something that would overthrow the entire um, governing uh, structure of the, of the Communist Party of China and install Zhao Ziyang as sort of the neo-Trotsky Gorbachev Yeltsin of China. That's how he was celebrated. It was as the, the Yeltsin of China. He was going to be the great man, the great hero of the people who would come out defending them against the big bad Chinese uh, state that would, was supposed to go more violent. Now, I always thought thousands of people died uh, by the Chinese government's military in Tiananmen Square. That's actually not true. When you actually look at the evidence, that was a mythology cooked up. There were uh, a couple hundred people who did die, but there was also 
a lot of PLA soldiers burnt to death. Um, buses of soldiers were locked down, lit on fire. Again, you could see the pictures. I published stuff like this on the Canadian, Canadian Patriot. Point being was that this color revolutionary attempt failed. And Zhao Ziyang was put under house arrest where he died 15 years later, never allowed to leave. He was stripped of all of his honors. Um, all of his allies were either put in prison or those who avoided prison escaped via Hong Kong where you had triads working with the CIA and MI6 in Operation Yellowbird. You can Wikipedia that even. Operation Yellowbird, and they were filtered out into Safer Sanctuary in Florida, New York, and Vancouver, where they became a foreign government in exile, waiting to, and running operations from the United States and from Canada against China, passing themselves off as if they were Chinese patriots. Um, somebody, for example, who works closely with uh, Steve Bannon was a part of this process, and he he was put in jail for two years during this uh, after 1989. Uh, Miles Guo, Miles Guo works with Steve Bannon. As people know, I'm sure, he, he bankrolls uh, the war room. He was one of the richest men in the world, or richest men in China, until he was he avoided arrest finally like in uh, 2015. He was about to go to jail again for extortion, kidnapping, bribery, all sorts of things, running a conspiracy with a, <laughs> a fifth column network in uh, that ran the Chinese CIA who were destroying nationalist Chinese who didn't want to sabotage their own nation. They were destroying them with sex tapes and other things. So... He avoided arrest in 2015 by going to uh, New York, where he has this $80 million penthouse, working with, again, Bannon. Whole thing's a, a rotten, smelly thing. Now, back to the question of Falun Gong. I'm saying all this because it was at the same period in 1992 that a new cult was created, kind of similar to the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, with a lot of Western foreign intelligence uh, uh, directives and, and funding under Li Hongxi. And Li Hongxi was somebody who had a, a mystical divine experience that where he realized that he was um, the new Messiah, that he was the Messiah. He is the guy who's going to now carry forth. He's kind of like a, a Prince Philip, type, uh, Prince Charles type of character. You know, like he, he believed that it was his job now to usher in the new age. He was also getting communications from alien beings from other dimensions, he said. And he, it was him personally who was the cause of organizing the balance of the forces of good and evil in the universe. So he had this whole mystical, like, L. Ron Hubbard type of experience around him. L. Ron Hubbard has a very similar data pro like profile. If you look at his, you know, his background, what, what his psych character is, what he created with the Scientology system, with its own rights of initiation through uh, examinations, you know, and, and auditing. Um, very much, very similar and so on many levels. And China has been, like I said, very sensitive to the growth of foreign intelligence agency cults to de de uh, undermine the, the nation from within. So he had a big following. It masqueraded on the surface as being this healthy, you know, Qigong exercise group of promoting forbearance and compassion, um, using basic practices of ancient Qigong breathing exercises and balancing your chi. That's all well and good as far as this. I, I've done a few of those. And that's, that's actually, I went, I went to a few, a few of the Falun Gong meetings in Montreal. There's a lot of, a lot of these things when I was younger. But then what happens or at some point along the way, <laughs> um, just like in Scientology, where you're thinking you're just getting through some, some, you know, psychological psychotherapy at a certain point, you know, you're giving money and you, you know, a lot of the followers have to give a shitload of money and they have to sign up to certain things. And you discover along the way that the real character of Li Hongji is that he's actually this Messiah-like interdimensional uh, force of good. And uh, all of a sudden, there's more political activism. Right around 1996, you have now China beginning to um, 
break away in a more serious way from the New World Order doctrine, right? They, were, they, they refused to privatize their central banks the way that Russia had done under Yeltsin. They, they, they refused to go along with the things that they were formally saying that they were, were going to do back in the 80s. They were like, we don't want to actually, we don't want to break ourselves up anymore, actually. We, we, we choose to, to do the other thing. And at that moment, and I, I mean, I've written about this in my book. If people want to read more about this, I would re suggest reading volume three of Clash of the Two Americas called Towards the Eurasian Manifest Destiny. It's got a picture of Ben Franklin and uh, the Belt and Road Initiative on the cover. So the Falun Gong cult is then deployed um, to start a yellow revolution, sort of like a, a pseudo color revolutionary process, um, which is highly destabilizing and a precursor to a broader destabilizing of uh, China, also undertaken by George Soros, who conducts economic warfare on the tiger economies, um, Thailand, Philippines, uh, Malaysia. Everybody is attacked by Soros' speculative attacks. Keep in mind, Soros has been banned from China. They legalized Soros' activity and, and person in China in 1989. It took Russia another 25 years to do it in 2015. In our world, Soros is still running our society. Keep that in mind. Hum like, humility. <laughs> um, so Soros is running an economic warfare attack that destroys China's desires to have an economic, um, what's called the Belt and Road Initiative. They wanted to unleash this way back in 1996. Um, that's sabotaged. Internally, you have a variety of, of foreign operations of which the Falun Gong are playing a role. China realizes this is going to be ugly. This is scary. They ban the Falun Gong from openly operating in China. What happens, just like in the case of um, the, the, the exiles that were part of the first color revolution in 89, they're provided safe haven in the United States. To this very day, Li Hongxi has this giant multi-billion dollar military comp, or not military, but a giant compound in New Jersey, like lap of luxury. He runs a multi-billion dollar complex that involves both funding Epoch Times, it involves the funding of the War Room, um, the, the dances, cultural movements, like it's a giant multi-headed octopus, all being protected, funded, and, and bankrolled by forces of pure evil inside that are controlling the United States as we speak and that want to destroy China as much as they want to destroy the United States. That undermined, this is what created the coup d'etat against Trump in 2020. It's the same Soros forces. So they're not tied to the British nation or the American nation. It's the supranational death cult, you know, oligarchy, which is at the heart of all of these operations. And yeah, we're being given a lot of psyops, uh, organ harvesting. Like I said, I've never, every time I've tried to find actual hard evidence that is not just anecdotal repeating what some other Falun Gong cult member says and repeating and repeating to the point that somehow it becomes like fact, I've never been able to actually find any hard evidence at all. I just can't find it. So, you know, I think that looking at the pedigree, the associations, the nature of the beast, the history of the thing, um, my conclusion is it is a mindfuck psyop. Yeah. Yeah, like my point at the start where sometimes I hear something and then I change my belief system because we had a guy on. I had him on my own show and we went through all this, played all the videos. There was a lot of parliament uh, meetings, tribunals on this. And now what you've said, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, I mean, the, the, the reality is a lot of the stuff we're seeing is what they've planted. And I mean, all the different things you've discussed, even say the arts. I mean, because I was working, you know, creating uh, like NFTs, I said, I need to understand art. And I was looking at all the arts, reading all the different styles. 
And I was looking at all the pictures, and I was like, this is really demonic. And all these famous artists come from this satanic thing. They make them famous, just like the artists now that we see between actors and musicians and everything. The whole lot is demonic, and it's all created. And then we have the system where we believe what we see, and we have to kind of question everything. So yeah. assume nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be our, our focus topic next time is on the arts, because I'm sure Matt will tell us a breakthrough moment. And lately, I see all this crazy art that looks like funny, but it isn't funny because it's telling us exactly what they want us, what will be sort of in the future. But like us, we just think it's funny. Nothing is funny with the way they're saying our reset would be. So, hmm. yeah, sure. You. Yeah, let's Thank do it. That sounds like fun. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, please go to Matt's website rising tide foundation canadianpatriot.org and books again desired uh her his books and this is with uh all your books is with uh cynthia chang right your lovely wife or yeah 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 we teamed up on uh, on the last trilogy and she's actually in the midst of uh finishing a her first full book with with i might do the full i'll do the forward but uh, it's going to be full full-blown cynthia chung on a like completely and that should be up and running probably within the next four weeks or so she's been cr like doing sleepless nights of just like writing uh so she's really really governed by the by the muse and it's going to be on uh uh what why oh i don't want to actually i won't spoil it i, I won't say okay. what it is. okay okay and, yeah. and you have the untold history and the untold history of canada the all of the books can be found very easily on the easiest way is canadianpatriot.org also, um, I just teamed up with a, an excellent filmmaker um, based in Ottawa. We've been making documentary, little mini documentaries now. We've done nine of them. And, I, love uh, it. I like it. I like it. Very good. Very good documentary. You know, even with that short films, it yeah. teaches you a lot already. And so don't forget to subscribe in Substack, Matthew Eret and Cynthia Chung. It's really, cool. really important. And Matthew, take care of yourself. Take care of your lovely wife, so she doesn't. Both of you don't get sick, and <laughs> and your little kittens. How many oh, yeah. do you have? <laughs> we we uh, we have one. Uh, yeah, yeah we, we moved into a new place. Uh, we bought a we bought a little place with our friend, but our friend has uh, bad allergies, so uh, we had to give one of our cats away. Who had who's the most or the biggest fur fur ball, um, and thus mm -hmm. would be most inclined to kill him. Uh, and we kept uh, the orange cat, Warfield. Yeah. And do remember, Roy has many podcasts as well, uh, Awakening and a Polish, Learn Polish and, and Meditation. The Crypto. <laughs> the crypto. podcast. And um, um, you can find me in Quantum Nurse. And I love all my collaborations as well as I love my one-on-one -on -one as well. So take care. This will all be uploaded in BitChute, Rumble, Brighton, and Podbean, and the CrowdView. So, wow, okay. Okay. Great. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks, guys. And uh, always a pleasure talking to you guys. And um, really appreciate the platform you've, you, you both have created really wonderful place to have good open dialogue in pursuit of discoveries and truth. And I hope everybody watching gets a lot out of this. 
So thank you, Grace. And anytime you want to talk about the arts, uh, Roy, well, I'm, I'm more than happy to join and, and chat. Okay. Sure. Thank Thanks you. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.